Hello, and welcome to That Tech Pod, where we discuss all things e-discovery, cybersecurity, data privacy, and tech innovation. I'm Laura Milstein, and I know a little bit about technology. And I'm Gabby Schulte, and you know what? I know also just a little bit about technology. That's why we're bringing on heavy hitters in the industry to help us break down these topics that we just don't know enough about. So, Gabby, who are we talking to today? Today, we're talking to Anne Bradley. Anne is a lawyer, technologist, and business leader championing the, res- championing the responsible and ethical use of data in platforms and intelligent systems. Anne, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So, and we really, really wanted to bring you on specifically because, you know, if for those of you who maybe haven't been living on planet Earth for the past couple of weeks, a pretty historic uh, SCOTUS decision happened recently where the U.S. Supreme Court officially reversed Roe versus Wade, um, you know, declaring that uh, which declares the constitutional right to abortion um, after almost half a century. Um so that right no longer exists. And, you know, we're not going to get into the politics of, of all of that today on this podcast, but we are going to get into the tech because there's some very, very interesting uh, privacy Im- implications that go along with this decision. So, Anne, we really wanted to bring your expertise in here uh, to help us break down. So for, for those of that are like, what does privacy have to do with Roe v. Wade at all? Can you like break it down for people? Um, Sure. I mean, at the most basic level, uh, Roe versus Wade was a decision based on the constitutional right to privacy. And so if you want to get kind of general about it, all of this stuff starts from a belief that in the Constitution, there are a whole bunch of enumerated rights in the Bill of Rights, and that out of those enumerated rights, there are general zones of privacy that are created. And one of the zones of privacy that's been protected for as long as we've all been alive is a zone of privacy around family and uh, marital affairs. And you think of that as sort of coming out of the very American instinct for the government to stay out of my home. So if you sort of understand that and you understand that people in the Constitution didn't want the government telling them what to do, uh, there is this constitutional context that's like, okay, the government doesn't tell you what to do. It treats you fairly. It treats you equally. Bah, bah, bah. There are all of these specific enumerated rights, but out of those specific enumerated rights, we find a general right to privacy. And then within that right to privacy, there have been a whole bunch of decisions that have been decided in the last 50 years that are really important, starting with you know the private right to who you're going to marry, which is the way that they struck down laws around race-based marriage restrictions around privacy, around having contraception, around privacy, around uh, equal rights to marriage. So all of these different things came out of this idea that you get privacy inside of this family unit that was, uh, in our lifetime, has been protected under the Constitution. Only uh, in light of this new decision in Dobbs is that no longer true. And I think the big question facing lawyers and everyone else is, where's the line going to be drawn? So if that right of privacy, which was big and all encompassing and covered all this stuff, uh, is no longer found in the Constitution because the word abortion isn't in there, then uh, guess what? Neither is contraception or any of these other things. So there's a real question of, you know, does this decision strike right at the heart of that idea of familial privacy, autonomy around who you love, around sex and the marital relationship, and then around family planning? 
Um, and so those are the things that folks are feeling are at risk. Um, I think just to give a little history of where that comes from. Are you feeling scared? And like, are you currently deleting all of your apps, shutting down your computer and just like living in fear currently? Um, I'm more disturbed, I would say. Uh, and that's more on the political side. I think we can get into the tech next, but, um, (laughs) you know, uh, for me, I'm more like troubled at, at the outset, uh, about, the idea of a reversal of history and progress that just yeah. feels weird to me. So as a woman in America, I'm more um, reacting to it, kind of thinking like, what was this like in Iran when there were women who were like professors and intellectuals and business owners, and then they were you know, sent back into their house and put into restrictive wear and not allowed to go to schools and not allowed to drive and things like that. Um, I had, you know, so I'm disturbed. But in terms of the tech stuff, I think it really depends on your role and your responsibility. It might be helpful to give your listeners a little bit more background about um, what I do or, you know, my background. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So why don't you tell us about that? um, You know, what is your background that makes you so uh, the perfect person really to kind of yeah, who is Anne Bradley? Because we know your background. We picked you for this topic for a very specific reason, but for our listeners, we assume, honestly, Anne, you're a big deal to us. So we assume everyone listening currently knows who you are. But for those unfortunate people that this is their first time being introduced to Anne Bradley, one, I want to say, audience, come on, get it together. Um, but just to fill those people in, yeah, can you tell the world, like, who is Anne Bradley? <laughs> uh, you guys are hilarious. This is pretty extra. Um, who is Anne Bradley? I am a lawyer by training most recently. I have been and was the chief privacy officer at Nike for the last 10 years. Prior to that, I had a similar role at Hulu. So I've been an in-house privacy lawyer for a long time working inside of companies. Before that, I was an engineer um, and worked on a couple of different tech platforms as a programmer and as a product manager. Um, and so I have a pretty good sense from a legal perspective of what's going on in the privacy area. Roe versus Wade, you know, I haven't historically been uh, as directed at reproductive law. I've often studied a lot of tech law and thought about platforms and companies, but I suspect that that's why you guys thought that this would be a good topic for me today. Absolutely. And so, you know, with that, you know, privacy experts are coming out after the decision and saying, um, you know, warning that data could be collected, you know, via certain apps. So there's there's apps that can track women's uh, uh, menstrual cycles, uh, Internet searches, maybe if someone is searching, you know, where Planned Parenthood are, are located, um, you know, uh abortion options, abortion access options, location history, all sorts of data that could be connected to um, the procedure of having an abortion. And so a lot of privacy experts are really warning a lot of um, implications that that go into that. And so what do you think is kind of the most alarming about, about this in terms of a data privacy perspective? Well, I think probably at its base, the most alarming is that we don't really have great privacy protections in America to start out with. So that makes it, you know, all the harder. I think um, 
the other thing that maybe like helps people get from Roe versus Wade to what does this mean inside of an environment where we know there's a lot of big data collected about us is that, you know, without the protection of Roe versus Wade, making abortion a right, many states will make it illegal. So we're going to walk into a patchwork of having some states where it's illegal and some states where it's not. And then exactly how criminal they're going to make it is going to be state by state. So each state will decide, you know, we're going to make it very criminal to advertise for abortion or tell people about abortion or pay for them to travel to another state or to provide them with information about it, right? So there will be varying levels that every single state will be making their own laws about how criminal it is to share information, support, and help people. And so that puts all of the people who want to do good uh, in really treacherous situations. It also puts all of the connector platforms in a kind of treacherous situation because they could be found in violation of those laws. So it's just, it is a tricky thing. And I think the criminalization is what gives rise to the problems around surveillance. Um, and so in the US, we've historically been the most nervous in the way that we think about privacy, about government surveillance. We've had a lot higher toleration for company surveillance, which is not the same uh, theme in other countries. In Europe, they have a different opinion about that. Um, but in the U.S., because our history and our privacy right is very much about freedom and independence from government intrusion, we have sort of that kind of an idea about privacy rights. So as these things become criminal, uh, there are a lot of data stores that lawmakers uh, seeking information, but also that prosecutors seeking to prosecute crimes under the law can go after. And that's what I think makes privacy lawyers really nervous is that we realize that this hasn't been a prosecuted crime in a long time. It has the risk of becoming a prosecuted crime. And then with that, you get all the law enforcement rights that already exist. You know, so folks say, hey, what about HIPAA? It's my medical record. Well, there's a law enforcement exception to HIPAA. If law enforcement asks for evidence related to a crime, there is at least a possibility that the uh, healthcare provider can provide it without your consent. It doesn't mean they have to. And that goes to some of what I've been thinking about that companies should be doing and, you know, people who work for companies and work in tech, what they should be doing if they care about this and they want to protect women's access to reproductive rights. Um, but, you know, there is this bigger problem, which is that as it becomes a crime in different states, it's going to come down to state prosecutors to decide what they're going to prosecute. And then all of these acts around helping people go out of state to get an abortion or obtain medical abortion or even obtain contraception in theory could become uh, criminalized. And as a result of that, give prosecutors and law enforcement subpoena power so that they can go to companies and ask for all kinds of data. I think it's, you know, the initial reaction around period trackers was very strong because people were thinking like, well, that's the direct evidence that you were tracking your period and it's about your period. But mm. it strikes me that the classic law enforcement data sources of payment and mm. geolocation are probably going to be more risky and somewhat harder to avoid. You know, deleting your period tracker is different than not using GPS on your phone. Um, and so if Google's going to receive a subpoena for your geolocation data within a ring fence boundary, which they already can get from law enforcement, law enforcement can tell Google, hey, I want to know all of the identifiable cell phones that came within this area and they can get that. Uh, all they need to do is ring fence abortion clinics and then 
uh, under standard practices, they would be able to um, get that if it's evidence of a crime. And if the company who's on the receiving end of the subpoena decides to comply with it and not fight it. And I think that's going to be an important part of this as well, is that companies are going to have to start making statements to their consumers to let them know what their position is on whether they plan to kind of follow the letter of these state laws or whether they plan to fight for reproductive freedom. And we're already seeing it in some types of corporate activism. You know, for example, companies pledging to pay for their own employees to travel across state lines in order to have reproductive rights. Yeah. And, and I think when, when you were mentioning different apps, I think separate from this, just apps in general, people don't always take the time to read what information they're giving away on certain apps. And you look at things like um, dating apps, for example, Grindr, there was an entire thing where they were selling people's information to AIDS clinics. And you can see on a lot of these apps, if you actually spend the time to dive into what are their privacy policies, but how many people actually invest the time into doing that. So a lot of people have been questioning, as you mentioned, period tracker apps and, you know, should I delete it? And in my opinion, the short answer is not necessarily. I think you should kind of choose the app that makes sense and you should do that with all of your apps and see what you're actually doing and what information you're actually giving and where that information is being used. Is there anything that you would tell people or that you can kind of advise around this that you can say, you know, based on this, these are now things that when you're going to a doctor and you're putting your sexual preference, you should be more cautious. Or when you're on a period app or when you're using, as you mentioned, GPS, are there specific things that right now you think based on what has happened is an immediate thing to start being concerned on certain apps that you may not have been concerned about previously? Well, I think first everyone needs to take stock of, you know, what they think they could get in trouble for within the state that they're living in. You know, so you have to be realistic about this. Uh, are you someone who might get an abortion uh, because you are of childbearing age and could get pregnant? <laughs> like that's a detail you need to think about. And then you go, okay, if I am someone who has that concern, then uh, is it illegal where I am? And if it's not illegal where you are, then I would consider it to be an extreme overreaction to delete your period tracking app in a place where you are just because you're of childbearing age, right? But Um, If it is illegal where you are to get an abortion, then you may think about, do I want all of the evidence about everything to be here? And so you have to decide, do I want to wear wearable technology that's going to collect information that could be used as evidence? You don't have to wear that wearable technology, but it's a trade-off. If you're wearing something that's tracking your uh, temperature at all times, that can be used, right? So that's the first layer is like, on my body, am I going to start collecting things or not? And then am I going to track it in apps? And then who are those apps? And if I'm giving like just a rule of thumb, what I would tell my buddies or my daughter, uh, I would say, you know, use the European ones. They have good privacy protection. If you just have to pick one, like you don't want to get into the deep stuff, just find one from Europe because they have privacy regulation there. They have serious protection for health data and they have the best, most thoughtful uh, health tracking related policies. So those are going to be some of the safer ones. Um, You know, that's kind of at that level. But then I think there's a next level, which is like not just I'm a person who could get pregnant, but I'm a person who wants to engage in activity uh, to support other people having access to reproductive services. Right. And then you have to think about, okay, now where am I located and who am I trying to reach out to and contact 
And is there risk of me getting in trouble if they don't want me helping with that? Um, and the answer is yes, there is risk. It's some risk. And uh, you should do it and you should do it thoughtfully uh, in ways that limit your exposure. And that's where it starts to get a little like, I don't mean to sound sort of like spy agency, spooky, what have you. But if you are engaging in practices that you know to be undermining the policy objections in the state that you're in, um, then you're more likely situationally to be a target of enforcement, at which point you should be more serious about managing the evidence that you're creating in that situation, because you don't want to create evidence of committing a crime, uh, period. <laughs> like that's just, people shouldn't be trying to commit evidence of creating a crime. So what's weird about it is that the guidance, once you're in that status where you're trying to do something like that, which you know is, you know, on the, um, on the, in the status of being unclear how criminal the behavior is. And that will be true for all of these laws for many years until they're all tested by courts. And we really understand, you know, what do they mean? And what do they say? But there are things that you can do that are just best practice, right? Like, so keep your daily activities and these activities separate in different ways. You know, is it get a burner phone? Maybe, you know, or maybe it's something more simple, like just use a different web browser for when you're doing activity around this and keep it at maximum privacy settings and download one of those. That's more like that. You know, there are things um, there that are related to sort of segregating things. There are things about uh, tracking history. If you use a cell phone, you have some control over how it tracks you and what it remembers. If you use an Android phone, for example, you can go into Google and set your setting for it to not remember the history of where you've been. That's a choice. I would encourage people who are engaging in activities that are, you know, questionably legal within a state because of a new abortion criminalization to be thoughtful about keeping history of all of their behavior. There's also the simple thing of not bringing your phone with you. You know, uh, be thoughtful about cars. Cars also have location tracking in them as well. You know, so basic privacy protections, not signing up for the insurance that allows your insurance to put a location tracker on your car. You know, those are kind of, these are like at the point of collection. Then there's these things sort of at the app level where you can actually use the preferences to turn off uh, lots of tracking and to turn off the ways that things are stored. Um, there's probably best practices about locking and encrypting your phone that have to do with, you know, um, turning off right now under the uh, current federal court's interpretation of the Fourth Amendment search and seizure privacy law. You can be forced to give your thumbprint or your face print, but you cannot be forced to reveal your passcode. So turning off your biometric identifier and using, you know, complicated numerical passcodes. Um, if you're engaged in these kind of practices, like that's all legal behavior that you can do, but that makes it easier for you to protect your own data. Uh, and then lastly, you know, actively deleting and turning off devices, uh, things like spyware that are getting installed on devices, you know, just restarting your phone, like do it when you shower. You know, it's not a bad practice to get into <laughs> to just be like, if I shower, I restart my phone. And then if you do that, then you are uh, turning off a good like 50% of the spyware and malware that self-installs on phones. So, I mean, these are all just good security and privacy protection practices for people. But I do think that it's important for people to be thoughtful about like, you know, 
uh, the context that they're in. If you're in California and you're never going to get pregnant and you're not participating in the movement in any way, like you're okay. (laughs) I don't have to do anything. If you have daughters though, you know, and you're thinking about them, truth is they, you know, when they're uh, young enough to, when they're old enough to have babies, it doesn't mean they're old enough to think about all this kind of stuff. Uh, necessarily so think your sons though if you have a son too i mean you don't know what he's doing out there and you can't control those ladies that he may be with also um quick question do you gabby do you have a burner phone oh yeah totally i could see you having like three (laughs) just felt like that was important for the world to know yeah gabby Um, maybe you could tell people how to get them i don't know how you get a burner phone really (laughs) yeah Uh, anyone classic like radio shack come on (laughs) i don't know i have Um, no idea and i wanted to ask you about like the broader data privacy implications so like you came out of the bat saying you know this is um this is concerning because the U.S. in general doesn't have very good privacy protections. Do you think this decision, the SCOTUS decision, will kind of renew a push for data privacy protections in the U.S. for more, maybe more of a blanket thing? I know there's a lot of things going on um, in the states individually, but uh, yeah, what do you see in, on that front? I mean, it's a little bit complicated. So for a little, it's sort of some insider baseball here, but we actually, in the run-up to the SCOTUS decision in the last four months, have seen the most action on a federal privacy law in the U.S. that I've seen in my time as a privacy lawyer. So at least in the last decade, we've seen the most forward progress and momentum. And there is a draft privacy law that is making its way through the House and Senate right now. being called the three corners draft. And there's a whole bunch of, you know, stuff you can read about that and learn about that. I think in the macro, one of the interesting questions is whether this uh, moment and the possibility of trying to codify some of these reproductive rights could derail what was the most promising (laughs) chance for us to get a federal privacy law in the U.S. And I think it's important for people to understand that just getting a base federal privacy law in the U.S. is going to be a huge win. Uh, in service of all of these kind of protections, even if it doesn't explicitly cover reproductive freedoms. Um, Because for all the reasons that we were talking about before, you know, right now, law enforcement can buy data products coming from commercial, uh, from commercial providers, meaning that even if they don't have subpoena power to get something, they can actually just buy it from geolocation data vendors. And if we had a privacy law at the federal level in the U.S., it's likely that things like that would already be covered by it. And so law enforcement would not be able to buy your geolocation data when they're unable to subpoena it, which is a tactic that I think, you know, uh, certainly appears has been actually used. Do you think that, um, you know, you mentioned some companies already pledging like, um, you know, paying for their employees to travel if they need to uh to seek out abortion access but do you think that um we're going to see companies making more of a firm stance on um you know uh tech companies to be clear um making more of a firm stance on this data question about you know people's biometric data and geolocation data and i'm sorry before you answer that uh, okay most important question we're probably going to ask you on this entire 
thing here is when I say privacy, the word in front of it for the whole topic we're talking about, can you tell us what is that word? When you say it, you say yeah, data pri- privacy. Pri- data privacy. Thank you so much. I just want to make sure everyone heard that it is pronounced data. Thank you so much. It's just a debate I have. Only going for on. Americans. Oh, I just wanted to be clear that I understood the American, Laura. Oh, so American. I say data, and then Laura always is like, it's not data, it's data. You guys, this is the very basic, basic debate. Because if you want to get real, the debate is do you refer to it as a plural later when you refer to it? Oh, my The data are or the data is. Right. That's the big debate. That is the okay. Thing. This is really yeah. why we needed the, you on the show today. Data show. <laughs> okay. I feel like so self conscious when, like, if I were to ever say it in in a plural sense, where it's like the data show this blah blah blah. Because that's the feel, proper way, Gabby. I know it's the proper way, but I feel pretentious <laughs> as fuck. It's so, true. It's pretentious as hell. Or do you feel powerful? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You gotta uh, think yeah, about then. it. <laughs> I mean, I guess I do feel powerful. A little, a little powerful. I would say know your audience. Know your audience. Figure <laughs> out what you're trying to do there. And for those of you who are listening, please reach out to us and tell us how do you feel? Are we super pretentious if we say the data show? The data show. Whatever. <laughs> say it again. Um, but and before Laura rudely interrupted me. I never about, said I wasn't rude. Um about this debate uh i wanted to know do you think that tech companies are gonna come out and say yes we are going to do more to protect people's data data um or do you think that tech companies are just gonna be like no i don't care and whatever uh probably a little of both so i expect they will try to uh they will try to make some decisions about some things, particularly those ones that they're required to publicly declare. So, you know, the more the public requires them to explain what their plan is, the better. I noticed that it was really interesting. I don't know if you guys saw in the sort of tech blogs, the reporting of um, Facebook instantly moderating a whole bunch of content that sought to get people access to out-of-state abortions in Texas right? uh, instantaneously. And that was kind of shocking to me. I was amazed. You know, it's a company I've been waiting for 10 years to take an active stance in moderating. And it was shocking that within 10 minutes, they were able to turn this on. I think that was pretty disappointing. There was one reporter on Twitter I saw who had used the exact same words to talk about an ad for access to abortion or assistance Mm -hmm. obtaining abortion pills, uh, marijuana, and then they had some other, it was like a third illegal thing, all violations of firearms, all violations of the policy. And they typed the same thing and did not get censored, uh, seeking to promote other illegal drugs or firearms, but they did get censored trying to promote access to abortion services. So uh, it's going to be an interesting, interesting moment, you know, and at the same time, we've got the background of a debate about free speech and people very confused about whether free speech applies to tech platforms or not. Mm -hmm. Um, So I just think it's going to get wild uh, first, but I think that the trick for people who care about preserving access to family care for women is to be vocal about it and to start looking at what the companies are doing and tracking it. 
you know, because when Facebook had to respond publicly to questions about this, uh, I'm sure it got a lot more attention than it would have if it was just, you know, some internal complaint from an employee. Um, So it's a start to hold the company's feet to the fire in terms of looking at what their behaviors are and understanding what policies those support. And, you know, just being clear about that. I say that as a consumer, you know, as a longtime corporate lawyer, uh, I have to say it's really hard because consumers have a wide set of different opinions and you have to decide how political you want to be as a brand, how much you want to risk alienating consumers and things like that. So I, you know, I understand the compromise challenges for uh, large companies and platforms, but I think uh, in this instance, there is a majority of Americans who are going to be looking at these companies and seeing, you know, are they with these Supreme Court justices who think we should be looking at what the rights were in the early 1800s to establish what the rights are today? Mm-hmm. Or are they with the vast majority of the public thinking that, you know, our rights have evolved over time and we're not interested in going backwards? Uh, and so, you know, we have a chance to hold them to account, uh, certainly in the court of public opinion, if nowhere else. Yeah. And, and for those of you who didn't really know about what Anne was just talking about, but, um, you know, this is this report from The Intercept. Uh, a day after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, Facebook's parent company, Meta, internally designated the abortion rights group Jane's Revenge as a terrorist organization. Um, so this is according well, that to- isn't the only one. That's not, like one not of the, the only one. It's just one of them. Right, right, right. So yeah. it's just one of them. They're not calling everyone terrorists, just to be fair to Facebook. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But <laughs> you're all terrorists. You're all but terrorists. like you're yeah. not. But, you're uh, not. Yeah. yeah. But it kind of just it kind of just yeah. illustrates um yeah. just you know an internal designation to to do that. And so yeah, and and honestly, you know, I think this goes with 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 a lot of the tech companies and, and decisions around um, tech companies that um, it can go either way depending on who is in charge of those tech companies, right? Like um, maybe they can designate uh, pro life groups as terrorist groups. You know what I mean? Like, um, Gavi, you can you yeah. can do anything you want, Gavi. You do, you make a private company content moderation, you guys. Yeah, it's. I mean, platforms have a huge amount of power. It's a right. real deal. They have a lot of power, and it's uh, causing governments around the world to try to regulate them. We've been talking a lot about like corporations, and my question to you around privacy, sort of in this topic, but kind of a general sense, is it's almost like how much how much do you actually want when it comes to transparency? Because you look at, for example, uh, Coinbase, they let a bunch of people go and they let them go. And one day and they put out a whole thing where the CEO was like, we had to do this. We want to explain why. And we gave all these people this, this and this. And then there was the other side of the employees that were like, all of a sudden we couldn't get into our mailbox and we were all fired at one time. And it's like a completely different side of what they're actually getting from it. Then you're looking at something like this where you have like dicks, for example, 
who put out a statement that like, we will give you up to $4,000 or whatever the amount is to travel to whatever state you need. And so you have like one side is looking at it like we're so, this is so great that these companies are being so transparent. They're explaining why they let these people go or why they're taking the stance and, and what it's for. And then you have the opposite side where people were saying things like, um, they're saying that, but based on that, you then now have to tell these companies that you're getting an abortion where, why are you having to share that information with them? Is it really up to $4,000? Does that come out somewhere else? Like, is this really positive? And it's the same with like the Coinbase. It's so nice. They were offering like free services to help you get a job. But then there's the people that lost their job that are saying, no, you didn't have to do this. There were other things. And so in a lot of these cases, I'm not the CEO making the decision. I don't know if he's in the right or wrong. I'm not the employee that was let go or that's in the position of needing an uh, an abortion. So I don't know if these are great or terrible things for me. And I think we as outsiders just immediately go to jump and say, the company is wrong or these people aren't seeing how great the company is. I'm going to cheer this on, but we don't always have enough facts. And I think it comes down to how much transparency do we actually need and what where do our rights draw the line between too much? Especially we're looking at things like DSARS with companies where all of a sudden I can leave and be like, I want all my stuff back. Is that really good for me? Or am I then saying I'm going to screw over the company because it's going to cost them tons of money? I think a lot of these data privacy laws are put into place to really benefit us. But some of them I question are, could we just use them against the company? Are they benefiting us? Where I'm taking this question to a very spirally level here, but maybe you can find it somewhere in there. I, I yeah. don't know where. It I mean, I think there's a couple things that you're talking about in there. One is like, what is too much information? And it's a real crisis moment that we're having through society in the age of big data. I'll take it somewhere a little weird too, which is like, what does having too much information do about our artistic heroes, right? Like we've watched all of these uh, situations where now we know all of these things about people who created great art, but weren't great people. And we have to make decisions. Am I still going to listen to this guy's music? You know, what do I think about that? I think your question is a bigger one, which is in the age of big data and with this level of surveillance, you know, is there such thing as too much information and does it ruin certain things? I don't know how that connects. I, and I think the answer is, yeah, you know, we have to actively try to preserve some things that will be ruined by having too much information, like, you know, knowing where everyone is at every moment. Maybe that's not always healthy, even if it might be convenient. And I think about that stuff with a 10 year old daughter a lot, you know, because as a parent, I have the right to have a whole bunch of information about her, but as an autonomous human with her own rights, I think there are certain things that, uh, you know, maybe I shouldn't have or maybe I shouldn't always be looking at. So, you know, I, I think on the bigger question, macro, yes, um, there is an edge to where things are TMI. And at this moment in society and time of big data and having too much of it, we're always at risk of a little TMI. I think there's a separate point you made about companies kind of trying to position their behavior in a way that's the most positive for them. and. I think that's as old as companies and that will continue. Um, and then, you know, both consumers and employees will evaluate the credibility of that positioning for themselves based on a whole bunch of factors, you know, but importantly, 
how consistent the company is about doing the thing that it says it is. Um, I think the interesting privacy question there that has confronted all companies who've made these kind of things like fixed sporting goods um, pronouncements that they're going to pay is that logistically that's extremely challenging and it feels privacy invasive. And so it feels like you can't get it right because even if you want to support people who get pregnant having choices, even within states where uh, the legislature is hostile to the majority of America, or in most cases, the majority of their own state's view about that. Um, they can't do that without collecting information about who's getting pregnant. And then, you know, here, just to bring it back full circle, we haven't even talked about what happens when your employer gets subpoenaed for information about who they've paid for abortions for within a particular state. You know, like that is yet another <laughs> Uh, now collector of information that could be evidence of a crime in states where it's criminalized. So uh, that's, I think, all just a lot of real complexity. They're good questions. For sure, we live in the age of TMI um, and companies will definitely continue to company, tell you how good they are. But, um, yeah. but I think like I want generally to be supportive of companies who are trying to do the right thing by their employees. Um, and, you know, even the most sincere ones who were declarative about it immediately because they knew that that was a strongly held value have had to do a lot of mucking around to try to figure out how to make it actually work because it's not uh, very straightforward. Right. And I think I think for a lot of these things, we're just going to have to sort of see what happens um, in terms of how things play out. Um, but I wanted to get, uh, one more, uh, input from you. Um, you know, at the, the time of this recording, Apple came out today with sort of this new feature it's planning to roll out. It's called lockdown mode. And, uh, it's apparently coming, uh, to iPhone and Mac software, and it will switch off certain features aimed at helping targeted individuals combat government grade spyware. So I just wanted like a quick reaction to this and like what, what you think um, as a privacy expert. Well, this is definitely on the heels of a whole bunch of other things that have happened over the last year or two, where it's been revealed that there are companies creating really effective malware. There was a perception, I think maybe five, six years ago, that uh, effective phone malware was not available for the iPhone. And then there have been revelations, I'm sure you guys have covered over the last year or two, of some government-supported, sponsored, collaborated type of spyware packages that have been really effective um, at tracking people. And uh, I think this is not a new position from Apple. It's consistent with the position they've always taken. So Apple and most hardware companies have historically taken the position that they need to be able to create great encryption and great security uh, if they want to, and they won't give governments and others backdoors to that encryption and security. You guys saw that. You remember the um, big showdown between Tim Cook and the federal government about opening the iPhone of the San Bernardino shooter. Mm. That was like a example of Apple taking the position, we're not going to help law enforcement break into devices. I think it's also consistent with Apple's longstanding position that if you're the owner of the phone, they want to protect you as the primary owner uh, of the phone. Um, probably in order to turn this on, you turn off a whole bunch of features 
And so I suspect as a product matter, it's a compromise that they've made where they say like, look, we want to make this available, but you know if you need this or not. Um, so when you're using this, you know, there may be things like you can't get your iMessage icons and you can't, you know, like you won't be able to have maps turn on and locate you within three seconds. So there's a whole bunch of feature trade-offs that are often made at the cost of privacy and in service of usability that, um, that may not be available to you when you're in this mode, but I think it's smart for them to develop a separate mode so that you know if you need it. It sort of connects back to the conversation we were having earlier about Roe versus Wade and your own data collection. You know, Be aware of if you're in a status of engaged in sensitive behavior within a jurisdiction where it may be criminal uh, and then collect evidence accordingly. If you're going to be a criminal, be smart about it. That's what it comes down to. Just do it the right way. Uh, well, Anne, you have been incredible. Words cannot begin to express how lucky we are to have you on the show today. We feel amazing. I don't know why I said it like there was a loss. I heard that. It was like, <laughs> Anne, I don't know what you're going through. I imagine it's horrible, but thank you for being on our show. Uh, so thank you so much for your time today. This was great. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, ladies. We just talked to Ann Bradley, um, data privacy extraordinaire. She knows everything. Tell me your tech takeaways. I wish I had at least three more hours with Ann. I feel like we were just kind of touching the surface and I want to ask her a million other privacy questions. I think on today's topic, really diving into what is going on and what changes will come to that. She was perfect and really gave us more of a clear path of forward and things to kind of look out for. But I want to bring her back already. I, I have too many more questions just around data privacy as a whole. We need her yeah. back. We need her back. Um, well, if people want to uh, find us and find more about Anne, where do they go? You guys should reach out to us. Uh, send us an email at contact at thattechpod.com. Check us out on our website, www.thattechpod.com. You can enter your email to subscribe and see what's going on. You can get some new merchandise. Check out some old episodes, some new ones. And just, you know. Send us a message. See what's going on. If you want to follow us in other places, you can follow us on LinkedIn slash that tech pod. You can head over to Instagram or Twitter and uh, get us at that tech pod. It is true that we still are awful at tweeting and don't know how to use Instagram. So if you want to send us a message to tell us how we are open to hearing from you. If you want to give us a five star rating or review, just go to Spotify or Apple Podcasts, wherever you're listening to this podcast, we would love you forever. Thank you and see you next time. Bye.